Morning, beloved. Uh, this morning, uh, we'll be looking at Daniel 2, verses 1 through 23. I'm not going to read the text to begin with. We'll, we'll work our way through it. So um, I'll open in prayer, and we'll dig in. Father, we thank you again for a new day and your grace, which abounds to each and every one of us through the finished work of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. And we pray for your blessing upon this Lord's Day gathering as we begin here this morning looking at this glorious passage of Scripture, your sovereignty, I'm always at the forefront of our minds. Prepare us also for worship as you bring your people here safely, we ask this morning from throughout the county for worship this day. In Christ's name, amen. Edward Young, in his commentary in the book of Daniel, speaks about the purpose of Daniel. I have it for you here. I have a few quotes today. He writes, The book of Daniel seeks to show the superiority of the God of Israel over the idols of the heathen nations. Although these nations had been God's instruments in punishing Israel, nevertheless, they themselves will in time pass from the scene. In the latter days, the God of heaven will erect a kingdom, it will never be destroyed. Although the end of indignation will be a time of persecution for God's people, the Messiah will come and the eternal kingdom will be established. Daniel then may be said clearly to teach the sovereignty of God and his dealings with human kingdoms. End of quote. Chapter 2 of Daniel contains 49 verses of the story that is dominated by Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Um, of a bizarre statue composed of various metals which represent four different earthly kingdoms that make uh, remarkably accurate predictions um, of the rise of future events in in mighty empires. Great kingdoms um, that are destroyed by a, a giant stone carved out of a mountain without hands, which represents the eternal kingdom established by Almighty God from heaven that reigns forever and destroys all other nations. Now, if the book of Daniel could be boiled down to a single message, it is that that God is sovereign over all of history as seen in the fact that Jesus Christ conquers all his enemies and completely redeems his people at the end of time. And that, of course, is where Daniel ultimately directs us. One commentator, uh, Joyce Baldwin, writes this, Daniel is seen to stand at the intersection between the Testaments, at the crossroads of history, It is part of the considerable literature that helps bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New, and so provides a necessary preparation for an understanding of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, end of quote. Um, This prophecy, of course, was given um, by Yahweh um, to a young man who was essentially kidnapped from his homeland Um, in his youth taken to a foreign land and forcibly trained um, to be 
a servant in the courts of Babylon. It's hard to imagine the level of horror Daniel must have felt when he was taken captive, you know, 13, 14 years old. Um, Yet, reminded as we were last time, um, Almighty God, who is sovereignly at work in history, is sovereign over history, not unlike any other event in redemptive history, God rules, God reigns, God has a plan, the plan is being worked out. For instance, in Psalm 105, um, when he he recounts um, Joseph being taken off, um, enslaved to Egypt, we read this, and he, God, this is Psalm 105, verse 16, he, God, called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He, God, sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. So the the fact that that God rules as, as sovereign becomes the settling truth for which Daniel in Babylon finds his security. And that's shown to us in verse 29, if you want to look there, chapter 2, verse 29, or verse 20, I'm sorry. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power, notice, belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men, and knowledge to men of understanding. Those revelations were given to us, the reader. Remember back in chapter 1, where in each of the three parts that make up chapter 1 is a statement concerning God's control over these matters. Go back, chapter 1, if you will, verse 2. Notice... The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Verse 9, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion. And then down in verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. And Daniel, he gave understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, that little statement about Daniel sets him apart from the rest, giving, as he did, this young Daniel, um, the unique capacity to reveal visions and dreams. In other words, Daniel was to be the agency um, of God's revelation, the human channel through whom um, Yahweh, Almighty God, um, would speak as he held the office of of statesman in Nebuchadnezzar's mighty kingdom. So here then, the the first part of the text, break it up into three parts this morning. Um, We're going to look at verses 1 to 23 in chapter 2. It breaks down as follows. In verses 1 to 3, we're shown the anxiety and, and fear of men concerning the future. 
And then in verses 4 to 13, we see the impotence of men to know and control the future. And then in verses 14 to 23, we're shown the confidence of God's people with regard to the future. So the anxiety and fear of men concerning the future, the impotence of men to know and or control the future, and then finally, um, the confidence of God's people with regard to the future. And it contrasts for us um, fear um, in hysteria of unbelievers uh, who are baffled by this dream and what it foretells uh, with the confidence and faith of God's people regarding the future. That's what's before us. So look then at verse 1. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. I'll stop there for a moment because careful readers often get confused here as they read this because they know that, that Daniel was brought into Babylon with his three friends to undergo how many years of training? Three. Three years of training. It tells us that in chapter 1, verse 5. The training ended at the end of chapter 1. So the solution to the dating problem um, is that the first year of any monarch in the Babylonian system was not considered part of his reign. They called that the, the, the accession year. Babylonians dated the king's reign um, by the accession year, which means they did not count the first year. They didn't start counting until the, set, the beginning of the second year, kind of like we do with our birthdays. You're not one until 12 months. You're one, and you're in your second year. So the same is true here. So they dated rulers from their first full year to their last year and any portion that they were still on the throne with regard to that last year. So you could be on there a month and still a whole year is credited to you, so to speak. Okay? So here Nebuchadnezzar, in his, his second year, Daniel's training was complete. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, his name uh, means um, Nebo, or Nebu, will protect the sun. So he's named after this Babylonian god. Um, he, he, was, he, he succeeded his father, um, Nabopolassar. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned more in the Old Testament than any other pagan king. The great Nebuchadnezzar. He was a, the guy was a genius. In academics... He was an educator, an architect. He had a, an incredible military mind, um, obviously. He was an amazing man, um, masterful um, in many areas. A very unique individual. He's the greatest monarch of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And a guy like this was not the type of man um, to be given to fear. He was a mighty warrior, who conquered and took dominion over nations and peoples throughout the ancient Near East. So, a, a, a brave and courageous man, to say the least. And here, notice that this mighty monarch, we're told, um, couldn't sleep. Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Now, dreams here, it doesn't mean many dreams. This is what's known as the, the plural of intensity. 
Um, he, he has this unsettling dream that left him unnerved. It would not leave him alone. He couldn't shake the intensity that it, that it created in his soul. I mean, this rattled the man to the ground. I mean, day after day, this dream that, that we read troubled the king, his spirit, means it troubled his state of mind, his disposition. Comes from the Hebrew word um, pa'am, the verb tense means to, to strike repeatedly. It, it troubles him, it, it strikes him. And he can't, he can't get away from it, so. This is a state of trepidation for this mighty man. It's like those dreams, you know, that are so intense, you wake up, you know, screaming. You wake up in a sweat. It woke him up, you couldn't get back to sleep. So you have intense trepidation. This dream, verse 2, then the king gave orders to call the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. So here you have magicians, conjurers, that, that is the enchanters of the day, sorcerers, men who claim to see the future, they claim to talk to the dead, they interpret strange phenomena. They try to interpret earthquakes and, and storms and floods and droughts, this type of thing. Then you have the Chaldeans. This, this, this was a group of practitioners of the occult, you know, the demonic. So he calls them all in. All these departments within his royal kingdom, he, he calls them front and center and they even had uh, ancient manuals in Babylon, uh, uh, manuals about dreams, explaining how to do this. It was a very complicated process to, to study and, and master this, and then to be finally admitted to the courts of the king. So it was, it was, a, it was a kind of science to be able to interpret dreams. But the folly of all this is going to be exposed by young Daniel, prophet of Yahweh, the one who is God. Verse three, the king said to them, I had a dream. Notice that I had a dream. And my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And then verse four, the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now, it's interesting that the, the, te the text switches from Hebrew to Aramaic until the end of chapter seven, which is the international language of the day. And then the final four chapters, chapters eight to 12, switches back to Hebrew again. So those things pertaining to Gentile nations, to Gentile kings are written in Aramaic, and then the meaning of those things written in Hebrew for God's people. So notice, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The commandment from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. Whoa. 
See, you're not, no chance to go to your little books here and try to interpret my dream. So tell me what my dream was first. And then give me the interpretation. Pressure. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you'll receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Make known the dream, okay, when he says this. Now, either the king cannot recall the details of the dream, which is not uncommon for, for any of us. You know we had a bad dream. I can't remember all the details. It's probably, it's much more likely that the king does recall the dream. And he wants them to reveal it. He, he's putting them to the test, these court magicians, rather than simply offer him flattery, which by this time he's used to. So Nebuchadnezzar, he was no chump. He, he's a very shrewd man. And he demands more than a mere interpretation. So he wants them to recount the specifics of the dream and what those specifics mean. Frightening, isn't it? I mean, it, it, in this day, it's just off with his head and it's over. Commanded the king. Now, I think it was clear that, that he knew what he saw in those dreams. But their meaning, which is unknown, is what rattles him. He's full of fear, full of anxiety, and the reason is, beloved, is because God was causing him to have those dreams. So the, the cause of trepidation and, and the inability to, to shake these nightmares, really, was because God was communicating something to this man by way of these, these dreams. Something that was beyond his ability to, to comprehend beyond his ability to reason within his own mind. Why? Because this dream was about the future. And it's not hard for us to relate to this, is it? Much of our anxiety stems from our fear of not knowing the future. What does the future hold? And we're anxious about the future for two reasons. Number one, we, we, we cannot know it. And number two, more than that, we cannot control it. Cannot know it. Cannot control it. That's the reason he's terrified. Now, we're shown that in verse 29. Look at that. He says, as for you, O king, verse 29, as for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Now, we'll get to that in just a few minutes. So here, the architect of this mighty empire, he wonders, you know, about the future, you know, how long will I live? What about when I'm gone? Will my work carry on? You know, it was these, these kind of thoughts that crowded his mind. I think we can relate to this. We think about our own work. We think about our own influence. We, we think about our own offspring. We think about future years of this church. If, if the Lord should tarry, will, will, will the work carry on? 
men faithful to the gospel. And yes, men leading and not women. Faithful. No offense, women, but men lead the church. That's all I'm saying. Amen? So here in the mindset of Nebuchadnezzar and that of Babylonians, dreams were considered omens of the future. So they put a lot of stock in dreams. They were indicators. They were signs of what was going to happen in the future. Primarily with them, it concerned materialistic determinism. We call it fatalism. Now, we as believers think of the future in terms of God's sovereignty as he sovereignly ordains all things. So we grow, or we should, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ to rest in his sovereignty. And as we'll see this morning in the sermon, the, the, the puzzle of providence. Providence can be very puzzling. But providence comes out of his sovereignty, his preordained plan that works itself out in time, providentially. That's where we get rattled. So dreams to them were like omens of disaster. This dream in particular, an omen of disaster and destruction that was headed his way. Taking into consideration, again, Nebuchadnezzar's Name, which means Nebu will protect the sun. That didn't look really, you know, it doesn't seem to be protected in the dream. So here this man, Nebuchadnezzar, with all of his wealth, all of his power, his authority, is helpless and impotent. He's powerless. There's nothing he can do about this. This dream has him undone. And to quote Sinclair Ferguson, quote, we learn much about Nebuchadnezzar from his reactions. We learn as much from his reactions as from his actions. This is true of all of us. His reactions are consistently characterized by a spirit of hostility as well as a sense of insecurity. These two reactions are intimately connected. Nebuchadnezzar is not at peace with the world because he's not peace, at peace in himself. The reason for that absence was his deep-rooted hostility toward God. End quote. And... In Augustine's famous words, um, the, the, the human heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. So when it comes to the future here, knowing and controlling the future, the, the wisest, wealthiest, learned, and powerful man in, in the world at that time Nothing he can do. So, he's in great fear. So here he calls in um, the, the PhDs of the day, these counselors. You have philosophers, political and religious authorities. And he doesn't call in just one department head. He, he call, he, it, the call goes out to all. Every department is called in here and they stand. This is the cream of human wisdom. They're, they stand absolutely in the dark. 
Their, their folly is about to be displayed. And the king now will expose them for what they really are. They're fools and deceivers. Notice he decrees the death of them all. And then hearing that bad news, they, they take another swing. Notice at verse 7, they answered a second time and said, like, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. Inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Here on display is the impotence of men to know and to control the future. From the king in all those who claim to know the secrets, the mysteries, and so on. So in verses 10 through 11, notice out of fear and frustration comes a great confession. Look at verse 11. Daniel said to the overseer, or I'm sorry, Wrong chapter. The Chaldeans, verse 10, answered the king, there's, there's not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. There is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. So in their stupidity, tying their own noose, they, they were spot on. This is an amazing admission about idolatry. In other words, their gods don't speak. These false gods, they don't speak. They don't dwell with men. You know, this is one of the satires of the prophets, right? Mocking Idols mocking idolaters as they often did. They, they mocked heathen gods who are deaf, dumb, and blind, made of wood and stone, and all who bow down before them are what? Like them. They don't speak. They don't dwell with men. Love it. And then verses 12 to 13, enraged, he, he orders every one of them to be put to death, including Daniel and his three friends. Now Yahweh, the one true God, the only God, he does speak to and he does dwell with his people. You know, that was the symbolic statement of the tabernacle, remember? That God dwells with his people, that God speaks to his people. The tabernacle. In that type, the tabernacle was a type that finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the Son of God, who was always with God the Father, who, who came down, took on human flesh, and tabernacled among his people to dwell among his people. Verse 14, 
Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel makes this request, and he's confident because God does speak. And God does dwell with him by way, of, by way of his spirit. Daniel's no phony astrologer. He's no, no heathen priest. He's a man of God who serves as counselor by way of God's providential plan being worked out according to his sovereignly decreed will. Having been taken off is a slave to Babylon. So he, he responds to this decree with confidence, composure, and um, great wisdom. Th- this event now, is, is Tremper Longman puts it in his fantastic commentary. Th- this is what amounts to, and he, he calls it a, a court tale of contest. A court tale of of contest. Much like that of Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream in Genesis 41. Or Moses as he stood before Pharaoh with his court magicians. Bunch of charlatans. A court tale of contest. So here at first glance, the the rivals of of Daniel and, and the king's it seems though it's a contest between Daniel and the king's advisors. But the real contest behind the scenes is a contest between Almighty God and demons. False gods. And when the contest is over, it's clear to all, believer and unbeliever alike, that the Babylonian gods are no match for Yahweh. They never are. They're creatures. So Yahweh has given Daniel wisdom. He's given him ability here to interpret the dream. He makes known the dream, as we'll see next time. Verse 19, and then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And then Daniel blesses the God of heaven. Verse 20, Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now, you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter.
And again, the reason Daniel and his friends are confident is because they understand God is sovereign. Ordaining and controlling all matters. He reveals the future to his people. Now, not every minute detail, amen? But God reveals the, the, the future to, to his people. We don't want to know every minute detail. Do, do you? So God in his wisdom, he wants us to know certain things. But do you want to know every trial and tribulation and, and or even every blessing that is yet future to you? No, you don't. Then you wouldn't sleep at night. It would, it would overwhelm. We wouldn't be able to function. We have plenty of revelation given to us, amen? We know how, how it all ends. We know the outcome of history. Dan, the book of Daniel provides that. The one who ascends to the ancient of days receives a kingdom. The second person of the Godhead who condescended, who, who descended to take on human flesh in order to dwell among us finished his work, finished his ministry, died, rose again, ascended, and received from the Father that kingdom as a man who is God. And that kingdom, which was established at his first coming, will be consummated at his second coming, a new heaven and a new earth. This we know. You don't know what the next five minutes has for you. Do you? Do you know for certain no one's going to blast through these doors and blow everyone away? Do you know that? No. We do have guys guarding <laughs> at the moment. So here's Daniel, a real crisis in a foreign land. A death sentence is, is enacted upon him. And he acts confidently because he knows that his God controls all matters and all events. And here he responds to God with worship when he's granted that revelatory truth. So as, as we come to understand the future, not unlike Daniel, we're able to act confidently and to worship God reverently. That's why we're here this morning. Not God's, you know, the figment of human imaginations, but the one true God who dwells among his people, who came and died for our sins and rose for our justification. And this we know to be true. We are in him, and therefore, when we go, Eventually, we will be glorified like him. This we know. We'll save the, net, the rest for next time. Amen? Lord, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for this wonderful account. Help us to be thankful for what we do have, for what we do know, and to worship you reverently, to live reverently.
because you have granted us, or you've given us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. Pray in Christ's name, amen.